0: real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And, and whether the foot soldiers regard themselves as fighting in, in a, you know, quote-unquote global jihad, I, I don't know. I don't think so.
1: We tend to focus our attention on events that occupy the news headlines. Often this means that parts of the world that deserve our attention as Muslims are neglected or we spend little time to try to understand their significance. And who can blame us? The Muslim world is engulfed in conflict and famine and led by authoritarian regimes that care little for the welfare of its people. We at The Thinking Muslims set ourselves three goals. Firstly, the need to raise issues that do not ordinarily occupy our minds. Secondly, I started this project after concluding that there are important thinkers in our ummah from whom I want to hear more of. And lastly, there is a need to understand matters beyond our social media soundbites. Today, I feel we achieve all of these aims. The Sahel, a region spanning the countries in West Africa, has been rocked by instability for the past few years. There is what the West calls an Islamist insurgency that has provoked international intervention from France, the former colonial power, but also the United States. There is speculation that Russia and China are also interested in the region. The region is one of the richest in the world in terms of natural resources, including oil, gold and uranium. Yet it's one of the poorest in the world. The proceeds of these extractive industries really reaches for people. This week, we talked to Dr. Alex Thurston, a specialist in the region and assistant professor of political science at the University of Cincinnati, to explain why the Sahel is important. Alex has written extensively about the region and is regarded as an authority on the subject. Dr. Alex Thurston, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to The Thinking Muslim. Wa alaikum wa wa Thanks a lot for having me. Really glad to be here. Great. And uh, really, Dr. Firsten, it it's uh, a pleasure to have you here. And I've really been looking forward to this discussion, partly because what is going on in the Sahel is very much a political blind spot for me. Uh, so please excuse me today if some of my questions are pretty much first principle questions. But uh, I feel this is an area I would like to know more about, and I'm sure my listeners would like to explore further. Uh, So let's start with the basics of the Sahel, the geography. So when we talk about the Sahel region, we're really referring to countries in West Africa that have been rocked by an insurgency. The West calls an Islamist insurgency, namely Mali, Burkina Faso, Mauritania, Chad and Niger. Uh, Can
0: you tell me more about this region, its history and its people? You know, as, as you know, the word Sahel comes from the Arabic Sahel, which means coast. And this is a metaphor, right, where the, the desert is being described as an ocean and, and this region, this you know, transitional region ecologically is being described as, as the coast of that desert or the shore of that desert. And so this is a, a, you know a, a region that is kind of in between the desert and the more agriculturally productive zones to the south. And a lot of the people there historically have made their livelihood through various forms of pastoralism or agro-pastoralism. Um, it's a very ethnically diverse region. If you wanted to, you could you could apply the label Sahel to everything from, you know, Senegal and Mauritania in the West on over to Somalia in the East. But now it's it's most often used in the sense that you mentioned, right, to refer to these these five countries. And those countries, and then, and then particularly Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger have been deeply deeply affected in recent years by violence um, violence along ethnic lines along ideological lines um, violence by the security forces against civilians including really really you know gruesome forms of, of collective punishment and then at the same time there's been serious political instability especially in mali um, you know multiple coups including a coup in august of 2020 and another coup in may of 2021. And so you know, there's there's just extremely uh, complicated interactions between the the politics and the violence, and then all of this is playing out among you know countries that are that are literally you know most of them at, at the very bottom of the human development index. I mean, these are these are literally the poorest countries in the world, with the partial exception of Mauritania, which is a little bit you know has has a little bit more. Um, you know economic development and 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 is also just more sparsely populated you know with a, with a much less much lower population than the others
1: you recently wrote a book uh, selected as the winner of the American Political Science Association politics and Religion section. Uh, the book is on jihadists in North Africa and the Sahel uh, and in the book, you discuss the nuances of these uh, opposition insurgent movements. Can you tell us about these movements and who they are and what, if any, connections they have to, I suppose, what we may lazily call the greater jihadist movements of al-Qaeda
0: and ISIS? Yeah. So this is, you know, this is a huge question. I mean, they, you know, the the, the genealogy of these movements is often traced back to Algeria in the 1990s. So you have the the Algerian civil war, you know, breaking out in, in the early 90s. Um, you know, gaining gaining a lot of steam with the Algerian military's uh, intervention against the, you know to to abort the elections there in in early 1992, um, and you had a sequence of you know armed groups in in Algeria the the GIA the Armed Islamic Group the GSPC the the Salafi Group for Preaching and Combat, and then the the GSPC rebranded itself as an affiliate of, of Al Qaeda in uh, in um, 2007, and then you know over time their Actually, space to operate within Algeria shrank. So the Algerian government offered amnesties to to some of the the armed groups in the late nineties. The there were um, massacres of of civilians in in particularly in nineteen ninety seven that that really horrified the Algerian population and that were blamed on on the the armed groups. Uh, and so they found, you know, the the GSPC the GSPC slash what became AQIM Al Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb. Uh, found more and more opportunity in northern mali and in the broader you know sahara sahel region and so starting from you know even from the 1990s but particularly from the, the 2000s they became involved in in various ways in you know business in the region and in, in cultivating political ties to to local power brokers and especially in kidnapping westerners so and and the you know particularly between about 2008 and 2012 2013, uh, they, they, you know, raised a, a tremendous amount of money. You know, the, the, the estimates have run even as high as, you know, $90 million or more when you put all the, the ransoms together. You know, ransoms paid mostly by by European governments, it seems. Um, so then they, the, you know, AQIM, this, this affiliate of Al-Qaeda, became a, a major player, you know, maybe a, a secondary player, but still a major player in the Malian rebellion of 2012. And this gave them kind of a new level of uh, presence and, and you know, recruitment potential and political impact in the region. Um, since then, they and, and particularly their their um, kind of subsidiary called JNIM, Jamaat Nusrat al-Islam wal-Muslimin, or the, the group for supporting Islam and Muslims, uh, you know, is a major player. Is, is headed by Malian nationals. Uh, so there's been, you know, maybe you could say a, a Sahelization or even a, a Malianization of this movement and and some of the key Algerian commanders who were prominent a decade ago or 20 years ago or 25 years ago have, a lot of them have been killed at this point, you know, by, by French authorities or, you know, by the French military or others. So you know, and and then there's been, you know, all sorts of fragmentation, breakaway groups, you know, divorces, reconciliations, et cetera, between, between different hardline groups. Uh, one of them has then ended up becoming an affiliate of the Islamic State, so-called, right? So, you know, the the and they call themselves, or they're usually referred to as the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara or ISGS. So these are the main two groups at this point, then the JNIM, the, the Al-Qaeda affiliate and and ISGS, the you know, the, the affiliate of Daesh or whatever one wants to call them. Um, their level of connection to the sort of global hierarchy, though, is a real point of debate. I mean, definitely, formally, they, they belong to those global movements. Um, in terms of their decision-making and and what drives them, I see them as as primarily local movements, right? I, I think that they, you know, again, JNIM is headed by Malian nationals. The, the head of JNM is somebody named Yadha Uh a Tuareg power broker and and longtime politician who came to the, you know, the, the jihadist milieu pretty late in life. Um, somebody, you know, who's often accounted a, a, a very, you know, shrewd political thinker. And so there's, there's big questions about um, what he wants and, and where he's steering things. And, and, you know, the, there's, there's obviously some ideological overlap between him and somebody like Ahmed al-Zawahiri but, but on the other hand, you know, is, is Ad-Dawahiri, you know, calling him every day to, to tell him what to do? I, I really don't think so. You know, I think that there's a lot of autonomy. Um, ISGS then, you know, is, is uh, sometimes described as, as just sort of glorified bandits. And they also both, you know, both groups recruit very, very heavily at the, at the local level. Um, and and some of the foot soldiers appear to be interested. And this is very hard to get at, right? Because it's it's you know, I I've never directly talked with foot soldiers or anything. I mean, it's really, it's really difficult um to get access to their perspectives. But it seems, you know, from what journalists say, from from what emerges through other sources, that um a lot of the fighters are interested in self-protection in a very dangerous environment. Um, there are ethnic dimensions to the violence, there are um opportunities for you know, revenge against the security forces or or against other communities. So it's it's very complicated. What motivates people, and and whether the foot soldiers regard themselves as fighting in in a you know quote unquote global jihad. I I don't know. I don't think so. You know, not all of them.
1: That's interesting. So it's a very complicated landscape. Um, so within that very messy picture, um, you argue that the portrayal uh, often in the western in Western media. The portrayal of of these jihadist groups uh, that operate in the Sahel um, is one of a I don't know a, a nihilistic, uh, one dimensional uh, uh, set of actors. You know they 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 don't really have very clear political aims. Now I think you argue that uh, we should regard them as serious political actors. Tell me a bit, a bit more about. Uh, what their aims are, what their political aims are, and what they hope to achieve from this insurgency
0: yeah, so I think you know they they have um they have debated this intensively within among themselves and and I think there's been a couple of different models that they've that they've pursued and and you know and they've they've often been skilled at adapting to to the changing circumstances around them and and the the questions that they've dealt with are questions that other peer groups have dealt with in other parts of the world, so for example, you know some of them feel that that the the goal is to overtly take and hold territory and to to create you know their version of of you know an islamic emirate so called um, that of course, the problem with that, even from their perspective is that it that it immediately invites the intervention of stronger military forces you know western backed or 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 just outright you know western military forces intervening against them. So this is, you know, a strategy that that they have turned away from a bit. Some of them, some of the commanders have argued that, you know, basically you need a, a sequence of of spectacular attacks, you know, high profile terrorist attacks and so forth to to kind of shock local governments and throw them off balance. That though also seems to to run out of momentum for them. It's it's hard for them actually, you know, there's a lot of low-level violence, but but they they don't, you know, commit kind of spectacular bombings and so forth maybe as often as one would expect um so what they seem to have settled into is a kind of a, a groove where they hold political sway without completely uh you know planting a flag and, and declaring themselves to be the explicit rulers of a place and there's you know there's all sorts of theories in in political science about about this and so forth some you know some political scientists just see rebel groups broadly as greedy self-interested actors who are in a kind of a money-making business. I think that's I think that's too too simplistic to describe what's going on. I mean, I think there's a mix of of motivations. I think that there are opportunities to make money amid the conflict and I think that there are some, you know, serious conflict entrepreneurs out there. But I think also it's it's sort of an ongoing political experiment and I mean, one thing that they that they do and I think this is what actually really rattles, you know, some some you know the, the the national governments and and some European governments is is that they they sometimes kind of outcompete the existing states. You know, particularly in terms of of security provision and justice provision, it seems that local populations do not necessarily welcome them with open arms. That that local populations are often you know very intimidated by them. On the other hand. The, the existing alternatives are sometimes either weak or, or absent and that sometimes there's a preference on the part of the local population for, for these you know, jihadist groups simply because they can be the best of the, of the actually existing alternatives. There was, a, there was a good piece in the, in the New Yorker a while back um, by Anand Gopal about uh, rural women in Afghanistan. He talked to women in Afghanistan. He said when, when he asked them about the Taliban, you know and I think there's a big difference actually between the Taliban and, and, and these groups and in, in the Sahel. But leaving that aside for a second, so when, when this journalist Gopal asked asked, you know, women in rural Afghanistan about the Taliban, he said they didn't want to compare the Taliban to some sort of ideal. They wanted to compare the Taliban to, to the actual alternatives, you know, basically warlords or, or the predatory state or something like that. And and that, that people preferred the Taliban in relative terms. And I think there's a bit of that going on. Now, I think, I mean, at the same time, I don't think. I don't think the jihadists in, in, in Mali and the Sahel actually really know where to go next. And I think that goes back to the experimental nature of it because they, they can't, I really, I really think at this point, they, they can't sort of plant the flag again and say, this is, this is our territory. This is our state that, that doesn't work. Um, but I think they're not going gi- to they're not going to give up. Um, one question then is, is whether any sort of dialogue is possible with them. Um, Jainim, the, the sort of, you know, Al Qaeda-affiliated group and and the Malian government have notionally, you know, expressed a theoretical willingness to talk to one another, but whether you know whether that could really go forward and and what the content of such a dialogue would be, that all remains, you know, very very unclear. You, you argued
1: initially that these groups have a level of political sophistication, and and one can't just regard them as. Uh, i don 't know nihilistic groups that that use terror for its sake but but uh, the jihadist movement since nine eleven uh, must have realized that uh, the the tactics they employ invite uh, a greater reaction not only from local uh, forces but from international forces and so the the enterprise uh, is doomed to failure uh, so it seems to me that uh, the groups in the Sahel are Repeating the same mistakes about groups in the Middle East have, um, apart from Taliban, and, and that's maybe a, a different example, as you said, but most uh, jihadist groups in the Middle East have failed in in that strategy to uh, to to free the region of international and what they call secular forces.
0: Yeah, and so I think you get, I think they get to a point, you know, and, and I I do think it's it's. Pretty similar to other groups elsewhere in the world, they they get to a point where they they face a decision of either, you know, isolating themselves politically and sticking with their original vision, or watering themselves down. And you know, a lot of a lot of people. I don't I don't follow Syria closely, but I think that you know Hayat Hayat al Sham, you know, the the HTS in in um, northwestern Syria is almost the key uh, experimental case for this. Right? How far are they going to go in watering themselves down? they've been accused of of you know even by uh, abu muhammad al-maqdisi and others of diluting the project right to the, to the point where it's no longer even um jihadism anymore and there's you know the 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 debate isn't quite that far advanced in mali but there's a similar issue with this group jnim um you know how far would they go in in terms of making compromises and and maybe maybe they will i mean you know because there's i mean this is you know, in a way, I mean they they can they can throw a region into chaos, right? They they can, you know, once they show up in an area, and this has been the pattern, especially since 2015 in, in Mali and Burkina Faso and Niger, you know, once they show up in a place, the, the military comes in, and these are these are weak militaries with with you know very limited control and very limited ability to project force. So the military comes in and responds to them by rounding up the young men you know, detaining them arbitrarily, torturing some of them, maybe maybe just summarily executing some of them. This then, you know, really, really obviously, you know, uh, upsets the local population who refuse then to, to cooperate with the military. Um, they're being intimidated by the jihadists. The jihadists then, you know, if they're recruiting heavily from a particular ethnic group, then that ethnic identity, some you know, becomes politicized in a new way, other ethnic groups start to target members of, of ethnic group A, you know, out of, out of suspicion and collective punishment, even if those people are innocent. And then the whole situation, you know, just, just gets worse and worse. So, you know, and, and now there's a lot of concern about the insecurity spreading into um, Cote d'Ivoire, into, you know, Benin, into Togo, even Ghana. Um, so there's no question that they can, they can disrupt the, the environment around them. But then w- whether they can leverage that power into into something meaningful it still seems like a political dead end ultimately but then the question is you know do do, do any of the leaders are any of the leaders interested in um, modifying their programs such that they could have a seat at, at a negotiating table with the national government so far in the Sahel not really um, they negotiate over things like hostage exchanges over you know Um, sometimes maybe very limited ceasefires. There's a lot of local level deals now where there's de facto divisions of territory, despite the chaos they can cause. It doesn't seem, again, that they can really leverage that chaos for for lasting political
1: power. Am I correct in saying that you are making a wider point about uh, what we call security studies at uh, Western uh, universities and think tanks and how they refuse to countenance that there may be legible political objectives sought by these groups. In your book, you, you make reference, I think, to, in fact, I've got a quote here, uh, that Western policymakers and analysts often talk about radicalization and extremism as forces more akin to mass psychosis or individual deviance than as political processes. Individual fighters are seen as fanatics to be killed or as patients to be cured rather than
0: as socially embedded political actors. What do you mean by this? yeah I mean, so I think that you know it's interesting to look at the metaphors that that you know even 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 liberal right even even center left you know politicians will use in the United States or elsewhere you know talking about um places as, as quote unquote breeding grounds for terrorists or you know talking about contagion or or movements metastasizing i mean often it's these these you know epidemiological metaphors or or medical metaphors, right? Where where this is depicted as, and it's very dehumanizing too. I mean, I, you know, I, I obviously you know a lot of these groups have have um, committed tremendous atrocities of their own, but but I still don't think they should be dehumanized and just referred to. I mean, effectively, they're being referred to as as mosquitoes, right? Or or as like you know carcinogenic, you know, cancerous cells or something. I mean so i think then and then and then from those and i think those metaphors are deliberate because i think it's either regarded as you know like like i was saying in that quote you know they're regarded as fanatics to be killed or or as some kind of disease to be treated and so the solutions become depoliticized right it's it's you know either the solution is purely military kill them all or it's kind of seen as a technical problem you know let's get our development experts in there who can come up with the right cve programming or the right combination of, of development and and um you know cve measures to kind of talk local populations off the ledge or something um and yeah i do think that i i mean i think you know a lot of security studies uh work would would say okay there's 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 an ideology but i think you know there is a reluctance to um treat them as 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 political actors who may be expressing some kind of you know non-non-psychotic demand on the on the part of the population
1: you've been to the region you're uh, you engaged in in field work uh in across the sahel i understand uh, did you meet with these groups with its leaders with its rank and file and and what was your how did they respond to you and what was your engagement what level of engagement did you have with with these actors
0: yeah so i i mean i haven't i haven't sought out you know direct contact with with active members of armed groups um there are people who do that and i I, you know i think it i think it um obviously it can be a fruitful you know um, line of inquiry. To me, though, you know, I tried to talk with people who were, you know, who had direct knowledge of, of the groups. And the closest that I came, and this, you know, I think this shaped my thinking a lot, because in, in 2012, in Mali 2012-2013, there was a group called Ansaruddin, right? So the, the defenders of the religion or defenders of the faith, something like this. Um, and it it included... Right. Yara Ghali, who's the current leader of JNIM, it included it was it was very close to the to AQIM, to the the you know affiliate of Al Qaeda. But at the same time, it included a number of senior politicians, senior northern Malian politicians, including some some parliamentary deputies and so forth. And those people, because because you know, the basically there was a, a jihadist takeover of northern Mali in the second half of 2012. And then in early 2013, France intervened alongside the Chadian military and other militaries to, to dislodge them. So at that point in January 2013, when, when the French came in, this coalition, Ansaruddin, broke broke apart. Some people went underground and, and went, you know, the path of, of kind of full-time jihadism. And then some of them just went back into mainstream politics. And so it was that side of, of the actors that I was able to talk to. So some of the, the leading you know, northern politicians, including people who are very, very prominent today um, and who are still sometimes accused, actually, of, of maintaining back channels with with the jihadists. And so I think, you know, that that experience in part um, shaped my thinking because, you know, it made me it made me think more about how some of these jihadist movements are, are coalitions. And I guess that's another you know thing that I that I, you know, that makes me think about the politics of them because there's a depiction i think you know and i think there's there's just been so much attention in in security studies and in journalism to actually the the european muslims who have who have traveled to to fight in syria right or or you know to to in an earlier era to people who traveled to fight in afghanistan and this has been portrayed as, as a process of individual level recruitment. And there's been a lot of attention to, to you know, the supposed psychology or the life circumstances. And it's it's been portrayed, I think, in a very atomized way that people come to, to you know ISIS or something like that as, as either individuals or or as maybe very small friend groups. In the Sahel, and I think in other parts of the world, I, I think actually people come to groups in blocks. And, and that groups are put together and it's not all sort of a, a homogenous process of recruiting people who are all thinking the same way ideologically. I think there's sometimes pretty explicit, you know, deal making and so forth. And, and that under the banner of a jihadist movement, you can get multiple types of actors. You can get um, hardcore ideologically committed people. You can get some of a, a certain number of, of fair weather friends. Right. Who are going to go with, you know, with with a kind of a bandwagon effect and what they see is the stronger side at a given time. And you can get opportunists and you can get people who are interested just in self-protection and you can get people who are, um, you know, you can get all sorts of circumstantial actors. Right. So that's that's more the side than that I was able to talk to is, is some of the people who actually had been in in a jihadist coalition and then left voluntarily.
1: So let's turn to the international counterinsurgency effort against these insurgency groups largely led by France, which I think still has 5000 troops on the ground with some support from the United States and other European countries. Uh, can you tell me more about France's involvement and
0: why it prioritizes this region in particular? Yeah, so this I mean this goes back to your first question. I mean something that I should have mentioned is that, you know, overwhelmingly in West Africa you're talking about former French colonies. Uh, you know, with the exception of, of you know, Nigeria, Ghana, you know, Gambia, maybe a couple other places. Um, and in the Sahel, these are, these are yeah, universally French, former French colonies. And so there's, you know, and there's been a lot of debate within France and and within Africa about, you know, France-Afrique and, and the continued legacy of, you know, what some see as, as neocolonialism, what others just see as, as a high level of French influence. Um, but I think there's no question that that, you know, France sees the Sahel as kind of its zone of influence it sees itself as the preeminent you know foreign actor there and and i think that other western countries defer to france on that i mean i think that the united states for multiple reasons you know is is very comfortable with having france you know quote unquote in the lead um you know and and the u.s has seen itself more as as a provider of intelligence and logistical support um france has sometimes you know depicted they've i mean one thing that i've said you know a couple of times in different venues now is that is that the sahel is very different from afghanistan but that the way that the french talk about the sahel is similar to the way that the americans talk about afghanistan if that makes sense that there's more similarity between the 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 us and the french roles than than there is in in the underlying conflicts um and so you know sometimes the french have, have basically made this argument of like oh we are we're fighting them there so that we don't have to fight them here and that doesn't that doesn't really line up actually because the, the attacks that have been committed within France have not originated in the Sahel you know and have not even really you know from everything i've seen originated in in north africa even in in a meaningful sense um so and i think too then there's been a kind of um you know self perpetuating logic to the to the mission and i think that the, the French have very much you know and they have they have They have complicated ways of talking about it. They have a whole, you know, coalition for the Sahel now, which has four pillars and and all sorts of, you know, development components and so forth. But I think at the heart of their strategy is um, killing the people that they see as bad guys. I think, you know, they they, they, I think they believe that, you know, raids against top targets, uh, that those raids are going to solve the problem for them. And I think they often feel. Okay, we're we're you know just a couple raids away from really making a difference, and they've they've been remarkably successful in a narrow sense at killing top leaders. You know, they they killed the head of ISGS, uh, you know, back in August of this year, I want to say, but it doesn't it doesn't work, right? You know, they, they kill top leaders and then the violence gets worse. But I think that they've gotten kind of that um, they're they're trapped a bit in their own thinking and and feeling that they can. Kill their way out of the problem
1: I mean is it just a, a connection with, um, uh, with its, its colonial days and, and, and that France sees uh, that um, in, in many ways this is um, still part of France's commitment or are there any economic interests that France have in, in the region that uh, it needs to protect?
0: Yeah, I think that I think that varies a lot from place to place, you know, so the definitely, you know, the French had seen for a long time northern Niger because of uranium production there as as a key, you know, as a key interest for them in northern Mali. Um, you know, I mean, it depends on who you talk to. I mean, in Mali, there's a lot of there's a lot of suspicion. And across the Sahel now, there's a lot of anti-French sentiment, suspicion of the French role. Um Definitely people have argued to me that that France is interested in controlling resources in northern Mali, you know, gold. Some some northern Malians are confident that there's, you know, uranium there, even oil or something like that. I don't know. I, I'm not sold on any of that because I think, you know, I, I think that um, I, I don't think in northern Mali it's primarily about economic interests. I think that it's partly about power projection. I think that I think that the French, you know, feel that. They want amenable, uh, maybe client states is too too strong of a word, but but I think that they want amenable governments, you know, across the region. I think that they they see it. I don't know, maybe even in a possessive way, as kind of as kind of their zone.
1: I mean, I I remember a couple of years back, uh, the French uh, made a big deal out of uh, the United States' so-called withdrawal from. These counter terror operations, Afghanistan being the most notable example, but uh, even Donald Trump talked a lot about, uh, or his 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 administration talked a lot about leaving uh, the Sahel, and, and the French got very angry with uh, with this lack of contribution from from the Americans. I think uh, I remember the the NATO is brain dead um, quote uh, came out of of, of Macron's mouth uh, as a response to it seemed uh, you know, America's. Uh, disinterest in in fighting these Islamic counterinsurgencies. Um, I, I just wonder uh, why is France, uh, apart from the reasons you've given, and maybe these are these are the reasons, but why is France so occupied with uh, with fighting what the Americans now call yesterday's wars?
0: No, these are. I mean, these are good questions, and I, yeah, honestly, I mean, maybe you know, I, I think I think this is something I need to think about more because I, I mean, maybe I don't, maybe I don't fully understand it myself. I mean, I think that they. You know, they they seem to be just at least conceptually trapped in 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 a in a losing endeavor. Um, I think that they have, you know, I think there's there's a domestic French component to this. I mean, I think there's there have not been, you know, tremendous French losses, um, you know, as as part of Operation Barkhane. So they had the the intervention in, in 2013, but then they replaced it with a with a Sahel-wide counterterrorism mission called Barkhane. Um The last time I looked a couple of months ago, but there had been something like fifty five or sixty casualties so this is not you know high casualties, but I think it's uh you know like like the United States, like other western publics i mean there 's a lot of scrutiny now of of casualties um in these operations there 's a lot of debate in France over you know parliamentary debates you know parliamentarians asking what what are we doing there right what is what is the point of all this um, I think you know macron some of the others have 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 talked about it in a you know in a fairly well i, I mean recent you know in recent years he's he's been a little bit more ambivalent about it i mean sometimes sort of stubborn and saying you know we're we're gonna we're gonna see this through and then and then you know and sometimes the french describe it in very sort of um black and white moralistic terms right almost we're, we're there to fight evil in a in a black and white struggle um but yeah sometimes even macron has been kind of ambivalent about it in recent years i don't you know so i don't know what will happen after the next the next elections in france i mean maybe you know maybe maybe he would if he wins maybe he would even double down a bit or or maybe that would be an occasion for him to pull back i really don't know and i'm not sure that his own thinking is clear actually because he's been you know in different statements he's been he's been all over the place um i think before we started recording you had mentioned about um wagner group right and and the russian role um the United States now in Washington, there's a lot of talk about so-called great power competition, including in Africa, right? Fears of, of Russia and China. I think, you know, with with the Malians, you know, the Malian government, maybe seriously, or or maybe more in a in a bluffing way, you know, flirting with, with Russia. Um, the French may feel a little bit of competition there too, right? And 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 feeling now that this this traps them in a different sense. Fearing that if they pulled back, that there would be a vacuum for more Russian influence.
1: I mean, I would like to talk about the Wagner Group, but before I do, um, so Operation Balkan, um, President Macron earlier this year announced that he would be uh, drawing down on on this operation and and um, a, a good number of those five thousand troops. Uh, he, he called for a withdrawal of those troops by early next year. I think it is. Uh, and And they will be merged into a more of an international task force. I mean, tell me a bit about that. Is that France conceding that it can't do it alone anymore and it needs to work with others is it a, is it macro responding to uh popular opinion in France, which is very much against this war and election uh, season is coming and, and France doesn't need to be uh in in this conflict so overtly during that uh, volatile period what, what's what's going on here with uh, in terms of this announcement
0: yeah i think you know and i'm i'm not fully convinced that it that it is a withdrawal even i mean because of this task force that you mentioned right sometimes looking at the numbers it's felt to me like more of, of sort of um Maybe it's too strong to call it a, a bookkeeping trick, but but you know sometimes they've talked about reducing the force levels of Barkan while they while they increase the force levels of this task force Takuba, which is supposed to be, you know, um, as you say, drawing from from multiple European countries, especially their special forces. With that, I mean, I think there could be, I think part of it maybe you know France trying to. Um, you know, acknowledging that they can't, they can't do it alone as much, but I think also it's trying to get more buy-in from other European countries, you know, to, to, to sort of um, bolster France's political position. But yeah, I think there's, you know, and I think that they're, I mean, they're, they're thinking hard now about multiple audiences, right? The, the French domestic audience, you know, where, where the polling, I mean, the last polling I saw a couple of months ago, the opinion was pretty divided at this point. I mean, even 50, 50, um, there's a ton of, of anti-French sentiment in the street, you know, in, in Mali and Burkina in particular, but a lot of the Sahelian elites or some of the Sahelian elites, you know, particularly those in, in power seem to want French troops to stay. So, so it's a really tricky, I think, balancing act perception-wise for, for France. And I think, maybe this is too cynical on my part, but but I think that the overall force levels and the overall... Strategy again of of just trying to kill you know the the bad guys um, as they see them. I I think that I think there's going to be more continuity than change.
1: And what about the Wagner Group then? I mean, it seems again that um, as you said that the, the conflict uh, is inviting great power competition. And but um, Wagner Group, there's no secret that the Wagner Group is is really an extension of uh, the Kremlin, and it's uh, you know it, it's a Unofficial arm of of the uh, Russian state. Um, what interest does Russia have in in the region, in particular in Mali? And I think the the government has recently invited the Wagner Group to uh, to defend the capital and to and to fight this counterinsurgency against uh, the so called jihadist groups. Um, what is the Russian interest here? What why is Russia getting involved?
0: Yeah. So there's been. You know, there's been a lot of analysis of this. I mean, the yeah, I mean, Wagner Group present present in Central African Republic, in Libya, you know, in, in other parts of the continent, you know, and and has been accused of, of committing, you know, serious, serious atrocities and and abuses in, in those conflict theaters and beyond. Um in terms of Russian interests, I think, you know, there's there's a sense that um Russia wants to project greater influence in Africa, there's been a a number of, you know, new or renewed um, defense and military cooperation agreements between um, uh, Russia and, and different African countries in recent years, you know, sales of Russian helicopters or other military equipment. Um, sometimes I've read that Russia does not have kind of a generic interest in Africa, but they have specific, you know, interests linked to mining and so forth. And and that, you know, in that sense, actually Mali would not be at the top of their priority list. I think that I uh, not not that Russia is just like trolling or something, but I I do think that they they are thinking about how to um how to mess, how to mess with Western Europe sometimes, you know, and how, how to, how to shake them up. I, I think that, you know, and, and, and Sergei Lavrov and, and, you know, Malian officials had, had met in a very visible way, you know, at the, at the sidelines of the UN General Assembly meeting in New York back in September, you know, the, they've, they've, I think really, you know, and, and maybe some of this comes back to perceptions. I think that the, the Russians have been almost gleeful about, you know, showing off some of this um, potential for cooperation with, with, the with Mali and there's also you know there's some serious historical ties there too going back to the cold war I mean you know Mali was was relatively close to the Soviet Union there's still a lot of Malians around of an older generation who studied in the Soviet Union who speak Russian and so forth um so there are some meaningful historical ties I think too sometimes in the region now uh Russia has a bit of popularity just because it's not France or not the United States you know and and there's there's maybe a little bit of um Kind of, yeah, just just support for for Russia as a way of sticking it to to Paris or to Washington. Um, whether they'll go in or not, I, I don't know. You know, I, I mean, I've I've seen the analysis that you know this is this is almost a done deal. Bringing in the you know the Wagner group to to do you know pretty serious operations and to protect the authorities. And I've also had the thought, and you know, and I've written this that that maybe this is kind of an extended bluff by the Malian authorities. I mean, they they now are negotiating hard about the French presence about um the transition back to civilian rule after the the latest coup you know and and the military rulers of Mali basically seem interested in in preserving their own power at least over the medium term so they you know potentially by threatening to bring in you know more russian influence they they have a big negotiating chip with with France to ease up on on pressuring them to cede power back to civilians so the, uh, there's a lot of moving parts i think
1: that's really interesting and and actually it gets more complicated with the role of the United States now, the last administration as i as I mentioned as you you mentioned um talked about uh drawing down and 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 um, uh, not committing uh effort and and troops to the region. Uh, I mean, its commitment was quite slim anyway, but it seemed like uh, Donald Trump and his administration had had given up. And that's partly, I suspect, to do with uh, the rise of China and and the focus on the Asia-Pacific. However, the new Biden administration has made a point of saying that America is back. And I think Antony Blinken, if I'm not mistaken, the Secretary of State, uh, visited the region in yeah. the first week, uh, it, it, you know, at least the, the beginning stages of, of the Biden presidency, and talked a lot about re-engaging with Africa and, and with the Sahel region. I don't know, I, I haven't seen anything since um, from the administration, apart from uh, the G20, there was some discussion with France about committing more assets and effort to to the Sahel. But um, w- how do you summarise the role of the United States at present in, in in Africa in general i suppose but also in the sahel region in, in particular
0: yeah i think there's i mean i think it's still sort of emergent um blinken i, I think yeah he had, he had done he had done some meetings early on and then he was actually just i mean a week or two ago he he did a mini africa tour i want to say he went to kenya nigeria and senegal so pretty close to the sahel but not 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 directly there and i'm i'm sure that in nigeria and senegal Maybe Senegal in particular, the Sahel was was very much at the center of his discussions. the The trip seemed to be, you know, thematically it seemed to be focusing pretty generically on kind of economic partnerships and and democracy. You know, and the Biden the Biden administration has made a lot of, um, you know, has talked a lot about democracy. Although, like basically every American administration, they've been accused of of being huge hypocrites on that. Which, I mean, many many American administrations have been. I think, yeah, I think that it's a bit of a, a transitional time because there's there's still a lot of concern, particularly about you know ISIS affiliates in Africa. There was there was a designation earlier this year, I want to say, of, of ISIS affiliates in um, Mozambique and in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. You know, this is something that um, the administration is is thinking about a lot. But then there's also this this kind of talk about um, the great power competition and, and the fear of of china and russia around the globe but but also in africa um i think probably on a day-to-day level with with africa policy that that i think east africa looms larger for them right now i mean uh, you know when when i see statements from them it's often about ethiopia or about sudan or or you know places ethiopia i think is, is priority number one for them at the moment um so the sahel you know maybe maybe even within africa a, a secondary priority at the same time, you know, there's there's permanent now infrastructures in the region. I mean, there's there's drone bases in Niger, you know, there's there's a longstanding um, counterterrorism training program and so forth. So, you know, the US is not not as involved as as France, but but there are sort of cross administration programs that that aren't going anywhere. I think.
1: And finally, I'd like to ask you about China. Um... Uh, you talked about Senegal there, and uh, I think in the week that Antony Blinken visited Senegal, the foreign minister said that she would like China to be to have a greater involvement in uh, the counterinsurgency in, in the Sahel region. Um, China, as we know, is is the great is the biggest uh, trading partner with with Africa, and it, it has uh, material interest, economic interest in in the Sahel region as well. I mean, w- what role do you see China playing? Do you feel that China can be enticed into uh, into providing more material support or, or engaging with this counterinsurgency, or, uh, or or is China's role more economic and and it it doesn't want to get its hands messy at this stage?
0: Yeah, that's I should say. I mean, my my knowledge of of China and Africa is um, is unfortunately a bit superficial. I think that they, I mean, from what I know. I think that they are they are reluctant to get involved in, in things like that. I mean, you know, so even even when their own personnel are affected, I mean, there were I want to say three Chinese workers who were kidnapped in Western Mali uh, earlier this year and they were just released. It was a very murky incident, actually, where they, they escaped and the Malian military picked them up. Um, even in those cases, I don't think incidents like that so far, from what I can tell, are, are 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 wetting any Chinese appetite for greater involvement in in counterterrorism or or anything like that. I think that they still see themselves as primarily, uh, you know, an economic trading partner. But yeah, there may be there may be more pressure on them as time goes by. I mean, this has been what what a lot of China Africa analysts have, have been saying for a while: is that that, that it's it's going to be hard for China to maintain you know, a narrow economic relationship with Africa without getting drawn into different, you know, political developments or, or security developments.
1: Dr. Ferson, it's it's really great to have you with us today. And I think that was a fascinating discussion. You and we we explored all the various dimensions. And um, I actually one one final question. I mean we we forget the human factor to uh this ongoing conflict in, in the region. I mean the ordinary uh, African, the ordinary uh, Muslim, the ordinary uh, citizen of of uh, the Sahara region. Um, you know, I, I've I've heard about mass displacements and and you know now internal migration between between countries. Um, you know, can can you paint a picture of what this insurgency and this counter insurgency, with all the complications of the Russian possible Russian involvement and and the uh, the you know the, the french um uh a counterinsurgency uh what what's what impact is this having on on
0: just the ordinary person living in this region yeah this is a i mean this is a great this is a great question and a, i mean a really you know a, a sad one i mean there's there's you know this is a it's a region with with. Uh, tremendous wealth on on multiple levels right on on a, on a cultural level you know and, and and there are a lot of resources in the region but at the same time you know the the baseline level of development and and poverty and so forth was was bad even before the current round of crises broke out you know this is a region for example that has um serious serious susceptibility to to famine and drought no so even if there were no armed groups in the region this would be this would be a zone of of serious precarity and and suffering and then yeah i mean as in as in you know other conflicts there's there's the death toll on the battlefield but actually it's it's the it's the displacement and the humanitarian impact that's that's the most disruptive i mean in burkina faso for example the last time i saw you know, something like 1.3 million people were displaced out of a population of roughly 20 million. I mean, this is, this is, you know, catastrophic levels of, of displacement. And then sometimes you get, um, you know, the, the, the humanitarians will talk about complex humanitarian emergencies. So you'll get displacement combined with, you know, medical emergencies. This is a region that's, that's highly affected by malaria, you, you get cholera outbreaks, um refugees then you know and, and internally displaced persons can can generate also you know or not generate but but they can they can um encounter all sorts of tensions with host communities um there's long-term questions in the region about youth unemployment and and just what the what the future of the pop you know the future of, of the economies and the societies looks like um and there are yeah there are some grim grim scenarios i mean the things things um in a sense you would think okay this is this is rock bottom but but i think it could actually get worse i mean i'm sorry to be so grim but it's just yeah it's it's the figures on the humanitarian side are really really scary dr alex person thank you for your time today yeah thank you very much really yeah really enjoyed the conversation despite the grimness of the subject yeah